So today we have an opportunity to continue a series we've been in for most of this year. Uh, We've been in the Gospel of John, uh, looking at John's account of his experience with Jesus. John was one of Jesus' closest followers, um, and he sat down to write an account of what he experienced with Jesus and who he came to understand Jesus to be. He says with clarity at the end of his Gospel, I write this so that you might believe and have life in Jesus' name. And so we are in, in pursuit of, of uh, witnessing, of hearing, of learning from, and growing in our faith as we read through the Gospel of John. Now today, as I mentioned in the welcome, uh, we find ourselves um, in a, a climactic moment in the story, and a tragic one, as we find Jesus crucified on a cross. But before we get to the text today, uh, we need to go back a little ways. In fact, we need to go back to the beginning. In the beginning... Way back, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this God was and is and always will be. God exists in relationship. Creator God created Adam and Eve. He created humanity in his own image. And God invited humanity into relationship. Come walk with me. God says, in the cool of the evening in the garden, come walk with me, be known and be loved by me, and know me and love me. Humanity walked with God, and it was beautiful, but very quickly, humanity chose to disobey God, choosing their own path. And sin fractured this relationship with God, and it led to pain and power struggles and violence and and systemic evil all over. And so begins the story of God's pursuit of humanity. God saying, I will pursue humanity and rescue them from sin. I will pursue humanity and save them. Uh, God saying, I want to make whole what is broken, to heal the wounded, to draw close those who are scattered, to remind people who they truly are, image bearers of the God of perfect love. So with the intent to save all humanity, God enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham. And he promises Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, he promises Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and all nations will be blessed because of you. I will bless all nations through you. And the nation of Israel, I will be Israel's God and they will be my people. And God in this covenant relationship is wanting to make Israel a kingdom of priests that they would point all others back to God. Fast forward a bit, and God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he leads them out into the wilderness, and he reestablishes this covenant that he made with Abraham. He reestablishes it with Moses and with the people, and he gives the people instructions. This is how you are to live. This is how you are to follow me. This is how you are to listen to me. This is the kind of people I want you to be. And he also gives instructions on how to organize the community. And it's just beautiful the way it all plays out. That God says, build a tabernacle, build a temple right in the center of your community and make all the camps around 
the tabernacle, because that is where I will be. That is where heaven and earth meet. That is the dwelling place of God, and God wants to be with his people, to be in relationship and to live with humanity. But God knew the Israelites just as well as he knows us. He knew what would happen. He knew that sin and evil had corrupted humanity. Israel would not hold up their end of the covenant, and they would not follow God completely. But the God of love did not give up on Israel and did not give up on all people, did not write off humanity and abandon us. Rather, he remained close to his beloved creation, and he provided an alternative way to, uh, for them to deal with people's sin and rebellion. And this is where God introduces a system of animal sacrifices, which can be quite unusual and surprising to us <laughs> at this time. But in those days, it wasn't such an unusual thing. You see, a lot of other nations offered animal sacrifices to their gods, gods with a little g, because they believed that their gods were angry and spiteful and, and they needed to appease their gods. This was not the case with the God of Israel. The God of Israel is a God of love. The God of Israel is one who desires to walk with humanity. And so God's love and God's desire to be with his people is what propels God to institute this system of animal sacrifices so that Israel would have a clear way to turn away from their sin be cleansed from sin, and continue to live in covenant relationship with God. That was the goal, to live in covenant relationship with a God of love. And so these symbolic sacrifices were to make atonement for sin, a way to make reparation for sin and be reconciled to God, all because God wanted to live in relationship with humanity. Fast forward some more, and God reestablishes his covenant with King David, promising this time, in addition to all that he has promised, that a king would come from the line of David that would reign forever. Still, the system of animal sacrifices was in place. Fast forward some more to future kings around 70 BC, 700 BC, thank you, comes the prophet Isaiah. And God speaks to the people through Isaiah, and he says, this is what God says, I hate your worthless sacrifices. These animal sacrifices that you're making, I hate them. They're meaningless to me because you go through the motion, but you don't actually turn from your sin. You go through the motions of making these sacrifices, but you're not stopping to turn away from sin and turning back into me. And so Isaiah in chapter 1, verse 17 says, Learn to do right, Israel. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. This is the kind of religion that God is looking for. And then further on in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, Isaiah continues to prophesy. And he says, Someone is coming. He speaks of a suffering servant who will come, who will take up 
humanity's pain, who will bear humanity's suffering, who will be pierced for humanity's transgression and heal, bring about healing. In the years to come, Israel continuing to turn their back on God, no longer had a king, was now a vassal state to Rome, no longer ruled as a sovereign nation, and all seemed lost. But remember that covenant God made with Abraham? I will bless you that you might be a blessing to all nations. You see, God is faithful to his covenant, even when the party he's in covenant with with is not faithful to him. And so God, to bring about that blessing that he promised to all the world, Uh, Jesus is born into the nation of Israel, that truly nation would be the conduit of God's blessing to all the world. You see, God steps in and fulfills both ends of covenant. I will bless and I will distribute my blessing. Whether or not Israel was on board, Jesus born into the nation of Israel is a fulfillment of covenant. Jesus would be this king that that, that rules in the line of David, and yet not at all what Israel was expecting in this moment. They hoped for a king to come and sit on the throne to overthrow Rome. They hoped for a resurgent of their sovereign nation, and yet God had a different plan in Jesus. Jesus was born humbly into the nation of Israel. We don't hear a whole lot about his early life, but at 30 years old, the traditional time, which a rabbi would step out on their own and call disciples to follow him, Jesus did exactly that. He walked along the seashore and he spoke to fishermen and he said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Understand, a rabbi and his disciples, this is as as elite a position as exists in Israel. And Jesus is walking along the shore calling washed up fishermen to follow him. And they do. Uh, Jesus began to teach the synagogues, and yet his teachings weren't at all what Israel expected. They flew in the face of what the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious rulers wanted Israel to believe about God. Uh, He began to break down some of the power that they wielded over Israel with the things he was teaching, and so, of course, they seek to have him killed. And yet some begin to believe. Maybe he is the king, and it's just not what we expected. Maybe this Jesus could be the Messiah, His followers came to believe in him, and thousands would follow to hear his teachings. And there were the signs, all those signs and miracles. And even those that didn't believe said, but surely he's from God. How else could we be witnessing the things that we're witnessing? And then he dies on a cross. And I'm not sure anyone believed in that moment. Today we find ourselves in that moment as those hopeful that maybe Jesus is the king, maybe he is the Messiah, Well, for a moment, it seems their hope is crushed. John chapter 19, starting in verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. 
When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with their garments, with the, gar- with the undergarments remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So when, as we prepare for, for sermons, we read through the scriptures and we pray through them and we spend lots of time in these sections of scripture. And can I just say, this was heavy. It's hard to read through some of these, this description. It's hard to read through and to really sit with it. It was customary at this time for when someone was sentenced to crucifixion by Rome for, for, for the Romans to, to write their crime on a plaque and then hang it around their necks. And as they walked, they were forced to walk to the place where the crucifixion was to take place. People would see what they were being crucified for. And then as they were nailed or tied to the cross, that plaque would be removed from around their neck and then posted on the cross. And it was this public warning from to, to everyone who saw from Rome that it, this is what happens when you do whatever it is that was written on on that plaque. So there's this use of power that is is just horrendous to think about, just this procession to the cross and the plaque and the, the pub the, the how public it was and how humiliating it was. As we re- Micah spoke last week about the trials and and Pilate mocking Jesus, the crown of thorns on his head, and this plaque saying, here, it, here is the king of Jews, king of the Jews. It was gruesome, and it was humiliating. And so as I focus in on this passage, I feel the heaviness of that. And yet, as we zoom out, And as we look at the big picture of what is happening here in the narrative, in the story of God, of what God is doing with his relationship with humanity, it's a pivotal point in the story. That what was meant to humiliate Jesus as the claimed king of the Jews was actually Jesus being lifted up as the king. John 12, Jesus entered Jerusalem as king, and he predicts his death. And in John chapter 12, he says to his disciples, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John writes a little commentary in there, and he says, He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. That being lifted up on this cross was actually the plan and that he was actually being lifted up as a suffering servant king 
come to reconcile people to God. We'll come back to that after we read the text, but I just want to briefly identify the characters in the text here. Uh, we see Jesus playing the role he intended to play. We see him uh, suffering as he knew he would. We see his disciples here, his, well, at least one disciple. By the way, the disciple whom he loved is John's title for himself. It's a real humble way to refer to yourself, you know. He says, I know there's 12 of us, but I was the one Jesus loved. He doesn't use his own name in the text. Um, so he's standing there next to Jesus' mother and some family members and a number of women that are there witnessing uh, mourning as Jesus hangs on this cross. And we see the character of Jesus in his uh, concern for his mother in this moment, right? As opposed to the concern for his own well-being and the pain he's enduring, he sees people and, and he demonstrates his concern. And then, of course, there's the characters of the soldiers in the text, uh, callously, uh, casting lots, rolling the dice to see who gets that final piece of garment, uh, of clothing that they hadn't already divided. Verse 28, later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was a day of preparation, and the next day, day was to be a, a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken of the bodies and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus. And then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it uh, has, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. I have a necklace at home. I didn't wear it today, but my grandmother gave it to me, so it's pretty special to me, but it's a cross is what the necklace is. And it's interesting how the cross can mean, can be a symbol of, of so much. And I can wear that and um, think of my grandmother, think of my faith. And yet also, I think sometimes we forget that the cross is a form of execution. That this was awful. That this death on the cross was awful. And it was four criminals at the time, preceded often by torture and humiliation. People were, were beaten, were stripped naked often, arms and feet nailed or tied to the cross, and then left there until they died. And often it was a long and drawn-out process where, where the, the person on the cross literally had to lift with their feet, with their legs, and with their hands in order to even take a breath because of the position that they were in. And so death came partially just due to the lack of oxygen because they were unable to breathe. And the Son of God was crucified. It is finished, is the words 
The task is done. Now, John had prepared us for this moment. In John 17, verse 4, he had said, uh, I have brought you glory. This is Jesus speaking, Jesus speaking. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Further, John says in uh, chapter 10, verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from the Father. You see, John has been preparing us for this moment when we realize Jesus has died on a cross. It is finished, and yet the story is not at all over. John also goes to great lengths during this description to point out that Jesus' death is fulfillment of of prophecy uh, found in in the Old Testament, found in the Jewish scriptures. Jesus himself alludes to this. It's not recorded in John, but in the other gospels that Jesus will cry out and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which isn't an independent question, but rather the first line and title of Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, the, the the psalmist speaks of they have pierced my hands and my feet and divided my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garments. John also points out here Exodus chapter 12 verse 46 that says not one of his bones will be broken and in Exodus that's speaking of the Passover lamb. And if you remember at the beginning of John, when John first saw Jesus walking towards him, he said, behold, here comes the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb who will take away the sin of this world. John also mentions here, Zechariah 12, 10, they will look upon the one they have pierced. All these Old Testament references are really important. John is pointing out that this is the one that has been prophesied. This is the, the one who is coming, the suffering servant king who will come and reconcile us to God. This is the lamb of God. This is the final sacrifice. The cross is a pivotal moment in the story of a loving God doing all God can to rescue humanity. We're going to zoom out here for a moment. We've been in the text exploring this and kind of re-experiencing it, and we'll do that even more so in communion as we close out today. But I want to take a few minutes to have a conversation about atonement theory. That might not even be a familiar term. Atonement theory asks the question of what is happening on the cross? In what way does Jesus' death on a cross bring about reconciliation or salvation or anything of those means? Now, if you grew up in Western Protestant Christendom, like most of us did, uh, the primary conversation of atonement is known as substitutionary atonement. And that's what most of us, if you grew up in the church, grew up hearing about. That is, uh, there's a penalty for sin, uh, and God has to punish someone. I'm being a little bit exaggerated in my terms. There, there must be a punishment for the sin that exists. And so Jesus was substituted in that we not receive the punishment, but instead he took it on himself. Jesus was subbed in for the penalty due for sin. Now, while this is a biblical concept, and, and while this is right in a, a sense, it's grossly reductionistic if that's the only understanding that we have of what Jesus is doing on the cross in this moment. You see, if we're not careful, it paints a picture of this wrathful God that just has to dole out punishment, and so he 
places it upon his son instead of humanity. And that's not the whole story. After all, God is love. Last week, we begin to talk about a, a, a deeper understanding of what Jesus is doing as we spoke of the subject of shame. You see, Israel in the Eastern world had a very different worldview and society and mode of operating and ways of thinking. So throughout Scripture, sometimes in our, from our Western mindset, we miss the beautiful language that's spoken of what Jesus is doing. Jesus, uh, who is uh, God through Jesus, is adopting us into his family, that we've been given a name, that we are his chosen people. Understand, to first century readers, this is the beautiful, remarkable language that comes out in the text. So let's talk a little bit more about atonement theory. What is Jesus doing on the cross? Yes, the penalty has been placed upon him, and we have been released from it, but there's so much more understanding in Scripture on what's happening in the cross. Let's talk a few different, I'm just going to highlight very briefly, and if you're interested in conversation. I would love to have conversations about this because this opened my mind and heart to re-understand scripture and, and this beautiful story that we dig into in my life. So another atonement theory is, uh, I'll speak of two, ransom or redemption, uh, two atonement theories that overlap very closely. It is that um, Jesus paid the price, um, a, a price deemed sufficient for the release. So ransom, that is, uh, something was paid that someone might be released. This idea then that we were released from any consequence, that we were released from uh, the perils and the grip of sin by what Jesus did on the cross. We were redeemed or ransomed by that. One of the most ancient and common historical, like the the historical church uh, theories of atonement, is called Christus Victor. And it speaks of Christ as the victor. Uh, This is the dominant historical theme, and it has to do with Jesus conquering evil and death on the cross. By being taken by it, and then, of course, raising from the dead, Jesus conquers sin and evil. Jesus conquers even death and invites us then into something new. Uh, The satisfaction theory has to do with Jesus' death satisfying the justice of God. Now, this is a really interesting conversation because quite often we've grown up hearing about the wrath of God that is satisfied. Satisfaction theory invites us to consider the justice of God. That is, sin has created an injustice in this world that has created uh, imbalance, right? Sin has created injustice in this world, and Jesus satisfies God's justice. His selfless sacrifice balances the, the fact that there is such injustice in this world. And finally, recapitulation. This has to do with the new Adam. This is probably the theory that has meant the most to me over the years. But it has to do with the idea that where Adam failed and sin came into the world and suffering began, Jesus, the new Adam, was successful in, in living a sinless life. And then his selfless sacrifice invites humanity back into that place of Adam, walking in God. God's presence. So I say all that, we kinda, I kind of nerded out there, and I didn't even have time to go deep into any of them. Uh, but I say all that to say there's a rich and beautiful narrative taking place in this text. It has to do with, yes, forgiveness of sins. It also has to do with the deep, deep love of God, that he, uh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, who would self-sacrifice for humanity's sake. And certainly we know this, of all the atonement theories, of all the theories and conversations around what is happening on this cross. 
It is the story of being invited back into the presence of God. John will describe God's motive for, for Jesus' atoning sacrifice in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. John writes, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is the love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That God himself would be the atoning sacrifice for our sin, the, the final and perfect sacrifice where no other would be needed to reconcile us to God. And all because of God's love, that this is a demonstration of God's love for humanity. Friends, this is where our invitation is this week, that we might receive and know God's love, that this invitation has been extended to all of us, that through Jesus, we might know God. Through Jesus, we might have life. Through Jesus, we might enter back into that covenant relationship with God that God so desperately desires from his beloved creation. So for the past 2,000 years, the church has taken communion throughout the world on this morning. Uh, people throughout the world, followers of Jesus, are taking communion. And communion is tied directly to what happens on the cross here. You see, shortly before his crucifixion, knowing what was coming, Jesus called his disciples together. They're sitting, in fact, at a Passover meal. And he takes the bread at the table and he breaks it. And he says, this will represent my body, that you would remember my body that will be broken for you. And he takes the, the wine at the table and he says, with this you'll remember my blood that will be poured out. And in fact, today, as we read here in the Gospel of John, that has taken place. Jesus dies on a cross, his body broken, and his blood poured out. And so we have opportunity this morning to uh, take communion, to share in communion together. And it's a beautiful uh, ceremony and time of remembrance. Uh, it's a way in which we get to, in bodily form, in a physical way, remember Jesus. We get to remember a body broken and blood poured out. Of course, in communion, I'm always reminded that the story doesn't end with brokenness, blood, and death, but instead there's resurrection and hope. And that's why today, 2,000 years after the events that we read about today, uh, we get to celebrate uh, that, that atonement has been made, that we have been invited back into the presence of God. And so communion represents an opportunity for us to, both in community together, uh, commune with God, Remember what he's done for us and the hope that has been found in Jesus. So just a minute as the, uh, as the band uh, leads us and we close out, uh, we're, I'm going to invite anyone that would like to. Everyone is invited to participate, and of course, no one is required to. This is entirely up to you. Uh, but I'll invite you to head to the table at the center of the room where there's tables at the back and take the bread and take the cup and eat the bread. Remember, Jesus' body broken. Uh, drink of the cup. And remember, his blood poured out. Head back to your seats. You're welcome to remain standing as we close out in worship after taking communion this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. Time to be together. Jesus, we thank you for your love, for your sacrifice. And so we remember today. Uh, 
what you bore on that cross. And God, we're thankful that in all that you have invited us into deeper relationship with yourself, to walk in your kingdom, to know your love, to know your presence. So Spirit, we invite you uh, to reveal uh, that presence to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.